0: Uh, guys, I'm grateful to be here uh, this evening. I'm grateful, as always, uh, for the chance to to be here on a Friday night. Friday nights are uh, highlights of my week every week, and it's not just because it's the weekend. Uh, it's because I get to spend them with you. And uh, so I'm just grateful. I'm, I'm I'm grateful to Matt for the opportunity to open God's word with you. Uh, it's a special privilege, a special honor. And tonight, uh, I have the task of showing you what God has to say. From the book of 1 John. So if you haven't already, uh, please make your way to 1 John in your Bibles. And as you do that, uh, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. How would you know if you owned an elephant? How would you know if you owned an elephant? I'm assuming you don't own an elephant, but think with me for a second, how do you know you don't own an elephant? And if you did, how would you know if you did? Well, as you stew on that very strange question, uh, let me tell you an equally strange story about an elephant and three blind men. One day, three blind men were presented with an elephant. And none of them had ever encountered an elephant before. In fact, this was the very first time that they had ever heard the word elephant, and each man was told to touch this elephant and describe what an elephant was. And so, the first man touches the elephant, and he says, ah, I think I've got it. An elephant is basically a rope. And the second man touches the elephant, and he says, ah, I think I've got it. An elephant is basically a tarp. And the third man touches the elephant, and he says, oh, I think I've got it. An elephant is basically a A spike. Well, these three men were quite happy to have learned what an elephant was that day. And so they left and they went straight to the store to purchase their very own elephant. And they walked into Home Depot. And then they, uh, the first man he bought a rope and the second man he bought a tarp and the third man bought a spike. And these men were really proud of their elephants. They told all their friends about how they had their very own elephant in their house how it's surprisingly cheap to buy an elephant, and how Home Depot has a great elephant selection. And they were all just just thrilled about owning their own elephant. And, And yet, not a single one of them actually had an elephant. You see, little did each of these men know they were a long shot from what an elephant actually was because when they touched the elephant, they only touched a little piece, a little part of the elephant you see the man who touched it and thought it was like a rope really only touched the elephant's tail the man who touched the elephant and thought it was like a tarp really only touched the elephant's ear and that third man who thought it was like a spike only touched the elephant's tusk so how would you know if you owned an elephant well what makes you different than these three blind men it's really simple That You would know if you owned an elephant because you have seen a whole real elephant, right? Not just the tusk, not just the tail, but you've seen a whole elephant. In other words, you would know if you owned an elephant because you actually really know what an elephant is in its entirety, and you don't have one of those. You see, if you only knew a piece of what an elephant was, it is possible that you might think you had an elephant when you really didn't, just like those three guys in our story. That's a, a bit of a, a silly example, but when it comes to having true spiritual life, I think sometimes we can actually act like those three blind men. Because sometimes we isolate and, and, and pick just a small piece of what it looks like or what it feels like to be a Christian, and because of that teeny tiny piece of the puzzle we can end up convincing ourselves that we have life in Christ when we really don't. Uh, Sometimes we look at small pieces of the puzzle like like going to church or, or like reading our Bibles as the proof of having life in Jesus. Or maybe we do the opposite. Instead of convincing ourselves that we have eternal life when we don't, sometimes we can convince ourselves that we don't have eternal life when we actually do. Maybe we really do have life in Jesus, but we isolate those moments of our life where we have failed or where we have fallen into sin. And as we do, we isolate those thoughts and they they start to dominate our mind and dominate our thinking. And before we know it, we can find ourselves doubting if we really do have eternal life when we actually do. Maybe you're not on either of those extremes, but I think if we're honest, uh, we we do tend to uh, err towards one side or the other. Uh, maybe maybe you tend to look at the stuff you do, and and you tend to find comfort in those things as if somehow doing good things makes you more secure before God. Or maybe when you fall into sin or into temptation you know that feeling of, of wondering if that was the final straw with God, wondering if you have finally worn out to God's patience. Well, the words of 1 John are, are a much-needed help for us when we veer towards one side or the other. And it helps us because it answers the all-important question, what is true spiritual life? You see, in order to know whether or not you have eternal life, you need to know exactly what eternal life is in its fullness. In order to not be so swayed by the good days and the bad days, and in order to not be so unstable when it comes to where you stand before God, you cannot just look at the small, isolated pieces of the Christian life. You can't only look at what a Christian does. You have to look at what a Christian Is. You see, God wants his people not to wonder whether or not they have eternal life. That's the overarching reason First John exists. In fact, look at 1 John 5 13 with me. 1 John 5 13, this is the, the purpose statement of the book. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In order to know that we have eternal life, we need to know what eternal life is. And so tonight my goal is simple. I, I want to show you from 1 John what true Christian life is. And to do that, uh, we're going to break it down into three very simple categories. We're going to look at the past, the present, and the future of the Christian life, the past, present, and future. And my prayer is that as you gain clarity on what true spiritual life is, your spiritual life would would grow in assurance and and stability as you run the race of faith. Okay, let's start with the past of the Christian life. For each of these three categories, I'm going to focus in on one word or one phrase that John uses in 1 John to, to connect our point to the text. And so as we look at the past of the Christian life, we are going to focus on this phrase, born of God. Born of God, if you want to know what the Christian life is, probably the best place to start is at Christian birth. Now obviously, I don't mean uh, physical birth, although God certainly gives you that as well. I'm talking about spiritual birth. You see, every person who is physically alive was once spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1, you know this verse, says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But for the Christian, there was a moment where you pass from this spiritual death and into spiritual life, and one of John's favorite ways of talking about that change is being born of God. So what does John mean with that phrase? Well, uh, we're going to do a little Bible study together tonight, okay? Uh, we're going to look at a few times John uses this phrase in 1 John, and we're actually going to read three passages back to back to back. And, and as we do that, I want you to try to identify something that is exactly the same Every time he uses this phrase. Because every time he uses it in 1 John, when he's talking about a Christian, one thing is exactly the same. And I want you to see that. Okay, let's start with 1 John 2.29. 1 John chapter 2.29. This is our first of three. John says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been righteous born of him. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Did you guys hear what was the same there? Did you hear what what was the same every single time? There's a lot of observations that could be made, but the one thing I want to highlight for us tonight is that being born of God is something that happens to the Christian, not something the Christian does. Every single time John uses this phrase, when he's speaking about a believer, the believer is passive. In other words, the Christian is the one being acted upon, not the one acting. It looks slightly different depending on the verse in the the English Bible, but the Greek word is the same every single time. In nerdy sort of grammar language, uh, the verb born is always in the passive voice when it talks about being a Christian. Let me give you an example of that be scared. Raise your hand if you got scared. Nobody, right? Okay, well, what if I threw a tarantula at your face, and then I said, be scared? Well, you you wouldn't exactly have a hard time obeying that command, right? And I don't know, maybe some of you wouldn't be scared, but if that's you. You got to get that checked out, because that is is not normal. Uh, But the point is, Uh, Something has to act on you in order for you to be scared. You can't just do that on your own. And that's how John uses this phrase, born of God. Every single time in 1 John, it's in this passive voice where it's not the Christian doing the action, but the Christian being acted upon. And so by using this metaphor of being born, John is trying to be absolutely clear about one thing when it comes to becoming a Christian. It is not an action you perform. It is not something you bring about. It's not something that you accomplish. That's why birth is such a good metaphor, because when you're born, you experience the miracle of life, and yet you did nothing to contribute to it. Just a a few days ago, it it was my birthday, and uh, I'm grateful for all of you who Uh, wished me a happy birthday many of my friends wished me a happy birthday and when they did I just remember thinking thanks I did nothing to get this Uh, because that's just how birth works to be born of God is something that happens to the Christian and not something the Christian does and so if it's not something we do well then who does it keep a thumb in first John and flip over to the gospel of John John has more wisdom for us. Go to John chapter 1. And I want to show you this beautiful little verse. John 1 verse 12. John chapter 1 verse 12. This is the answer to our question, who does it? John writes, But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can turn back to 1 John now. God is the one behind the life of every single Christian. God is the source and the the author and the origin of all true spiritual life. Let me say it this way, if you don't have God, you don't have life. Unless God gives you life, you remain dead in your trespasses and sins. But the good news is that God gave his only son on the cross for the sins of all those who would believe, so that by believing, they might have life. Ephesians 2.8, you know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. I cannot overstate how important this is to knowing what the essence of true spiritual life is. Our own pastor says it this way. There are basically only two kinds of religion in the world. Those based on human achievement and the one based on divine accomplishment. One says you can earn your way to heaven. The other says you must trust in Jesus Christ alone. The heartbeat and the lifeblood of the Christian is that God has accomplished for us what we could have never accomplished for ourselves. You know, last week, I hope that you were both encouraged and challenged. Because I hope that you saw that the call of the Christian life isn't hard. It's impossible, at least on our own. It is impossible for us on our own to live in the pure light of God because we are sinners. Matt so helpfully explained this last week that that God is light and so we are called to live in that light. In other words, God himself is the standard to which every human is called to live. And if you were to examine yourself just for a minute, you would see that you fall short of that pure perfection. That's why we need this doctrine of regeneration. That's why we need John's teaching of being born of God. Because true Christianity is not about human uh, achievement. It is about divine accomplishment. Listen to this stanza that sums it up so beautifully. I have not my own goodness. No, I have no pure desire. But you wrote into existence all the faith that you require. The good news is that God supplies what he requires. Let me say that again. God supplies what what he requires. Whether you are in need of God's grace to supply you faith for the very first time or you are in need of God's grace to sustain your faith as you live out your Christian life, rest assured, God is able to supply it all. And so if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation, please know that God has supplied in his son Jesus what he required of you. God is perfect, and so he has required a perfect life from you, his creature, and you have rebelled and failed. And God is just, and and so he has required that for your sin, you must pay the appropriate penalty. And the appropriate penalty for sin against an eternal God is eternal punishment. That is what God requires of you as your holy creator. But what God has required of you, he himself has supplied. Because Jesus, God of very God, lived that perfect life in your place and paid your debt by dying on the cross, there is nothing more that God requires of you except to turn from your sin and to trust in this Jesus for forgiveness. And this Jesus is trustworthy because three days later he rose from the grave proving that his life indeed was perfect and proving that his death indeed was not for his own sins but for the sins of all who would believe. In the gospel, God has supplied what he required. And there's nothing better for you, nothing more urgent for you than to believe in that good news tonight. To believe in that message is to be born of God. It's to have God do for you what you could never do for yourself. And if you are a Christian here today, the same goes for you. If you you feel burdened by the weight of your sin, if you feel tired and weary of, of finding yourself with one foot in the dark, please know God will supply all the grace, all the strength, all the faith that you need to walk in the light. When you stumble and when you fall, when you're tempted, and and when it feels like you have have struggled with that one sin one too many times, remember the kind of life that God has given you. When you were born of God, that was a, a definitive and irrevocable act of God. When you trusted in Jesus, that was God doing something in your soul. And God doesn't change his mind, so he will, he will finish the good work that he began in you. It might be uncomfortable, it might hurt, it might feel like a long road ahead. But that's usually how killing sin feels. That's usually how it feels to starve sin and to make no provision for the flesh. And that is not something that we can do in our own strength. But God supplies what he requires. What I just said is seriously started to kind of overlap with our next look into what Christian life is. So let's move on from the past of the Christian life and now look at the present of the Christian life. The present of the Christian life. As we try to sort of gain clarity on what Christian life is, it's important that we don't just look at the origin of it, but also that we look at the ongoing nature of it. Let's go back to that elephant analogy. If we stop just at the moment of being born of God, we can miss so much about what true spiritual life is, and so we need to to fill out our understanding by looking at the Christian life in the present. Remember, for each uh, category, we're going to focus in on one word or phrase that John sort of uh, weaves throughout his letter, and to talk about the present of the Christian life, we are going to look at this word, abide. Abide. Uh, now, most of you have, have never met my dad, my earthly dad, to be clear. At least I don't think so. That'd be weird if you had and I didn't know. Uh, but if you did meet my dad, uh, I think you would be surprised. I think, if you might, I think if you met my dad, you might say something like, Are you guys sure you're related? Uh, are, are you sure that, that he's your son? And I think that you might say that because my dad is six feet tall, and I am not. I am, I am 5'11 and a half with shoes on. Uh, no, I'm not. But you see, what I'm trying to say is that if you were to meet my dad who stands six feet tall and look at me, you'd, you'd see an obvious discrepancy there, right? Uh, but if you were to meet my brother you might say, oh, well, that makes sense because my brother also stands six feet tall. I don't know why. Genetics. Um, You would look at my dad and you would look at me and you would see this discrepancy even though I was born of my dad. The point is that you tend to to share the likeness of your parents. If you're born of someone, you tend to to share their traits. And when you don't, like me, uh, it tends to be quite strange and, and it sticks out. Well, as we look at this word abide, I hope that you'll see that abiding in God is really just the, the natural sort of expected outworking of being born of God. Uh, your present Christian life is the result, the logical result, of having been given new life by God. And so when John says abide in 1 John, it is no surprise that he doesn't just say abide, but he says abide in God, just like you were born of God, let me show you two clear examples of this. Look at First John 3:24. First John chapter three, look at verse 24. John writes, "Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us." Now look down at First John 4, verse 15. John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Last week, we also saw that uh, uh, God is light, and so sometimes John will say, abide in the light. Uh, In a few weeks, we'll see that John says God is love, and so John also says things like, abide in love, and either way, John's main focus with this word abide is to highlight that the the present and the ongoing nature of the Christian life is inextricably tied to God himself. In other words, the the fundamental nature of Christian life can never be disconnected from the person of God, or it's not true life. That's why going through the motions of Christianity without a personal and intimate relationship with God, is really a false religion. Uh, this is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, I don't care that you prophesied in my name. I don't care that you casted out demons in my name. I never knew you. Depart from me. You see, the good works that we do, uh, the obedience to, to commandments in 1 John three twenty four, and the walking in the light and in, and in love that is all dependent on abiding in God. These things we do as believers must be seen as, as fruits of your connectedness to God and results of your intimate relationship with your Creator. No one explains this better than Jesus himself. Listen to John 15, 4-5. This is a, a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. John 15, 4-5. Here we'll see that John gets his abide theology straight from the source in the words of Jesus. Jesus says, "'Abide in me, and I in you. "'As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, "'neither can you unless you abide in me. "'I am the vine, you are the branches.'" Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus really is the the greatest preacher of all time because in this genius illustration of, of vine and branches, we see the heart of what it means to abide in Christ. Uh, Erica and I uh, recently moved and in our uh, new place, there's this cool little sunroom. And we aren't like serious plant people, uh, but having this sunroom has made us definitely more excited about plants because it's just the perfect place to grow plants. And uh, as we've sort of watched our plants flourish in this sunroom, we've entered the world of propagation. You guys know about propagation? This is the fullest use of my biology degree. Propagation. Uh, Propagation for all you non-plant people is uh, when you clip a piece of a plant, usually like a vine of some kind and and you replant that clipped piece and then that grows into a new plant. And we've been doing it with this plant called a pothos. And we started with one pothos and now we have like eight pothi or pothoses. I don't even know. But there's a bunch of them and and there's this one giant vine and a bunch of these little baby pothoses and and the the most important thing that i learned when i learned about propagation is that you can't just cut off a leaf and replant the leaf or else the leaf just dies you have to to cut from the main vine and then replant the vine in order to have a new and living plant. Because the life of the plant is in that vine, not the leaf. And so when Jesus says, he is the vine and we are the branches, it's such an amazing illustration because, first of all, it means we are unified. Uh, We are uh, the same plant, so to speak. We live as one. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. We are one, and yet at the same time, it is we, the branches... Who are dependent on him, the vine. You see, if we are cut off, we die, not him. And if we are disconnected from him, we will not produce any fruit. And so, although it is true that we both abide in one another, it's not exactly symmetrical, it's not totally 100% reciprocal. He gives us life, and we are dependent on him, and yet we are one. In this illustration, there is no doubt that we are unified to Christ, but there is also no doubt that it is we who are dependent on him, for apart from him, we can do nothing. And that is the heart of this word, abide. It speaks of the Christian being so unified to Jesus through the gospel that Jesus' life becomes our life. The very life of Jesus begins coursing through the veins of a Christian. And so, isn't it no surprise that the Christian starts to look like Christ? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. To live by faith in Christ is to abide in Christ. It's to live a life of, of repentance that constantly brings your sin to the light, knowing that you will find forgiveness. And as you do, you will start to look more and more like him, and you will start to be more and more sure of your life in him. As J.C. Ryle said, sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. Sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven forgiven. John wants this to be our perspective of our everyday Christianity. He wants us to understand that we can be sure of our possession of true eternal life, not by pointing at uh, our own willpower or the things that we do, but by pointing us towards this relationship that we have with Jesus. And that is so helpful because I think so often we we tend to think about how we 're doing spiritually speaking based on how we feel or based on some spiritual experience uh, sometimes we we confuse true spirituality with with emotionalism I, th- I think we we look too much for for some emotional high or some special experience or some kind of miraculous moment to reaffirm us and to reassure our hearts before. God. But what if we looked instead to the ordinary, quiet, hidden acts of obedience and love that are empowered by Jesus? You know, I don't think we necessarily think too highly of emotions or experiences. I think we think too lowly of love. I think we think too lowly of obedience. What if we recalibrated how we assess a vibrant spiritual life not by emotion or grandiose experience but but by faithful unseen day-to-day obedience and love how much more might we see god working in us how much more might we see the reality of our new life in this abiding relationship with jesus where he gives us life every? single day to bear fruit. That's what it means to abide. John has helped us sort of understand the past and the present of the Christian life, and he also helps us to understand the future of the Christian life, the future of the Christian life. And as we begin to think about the future of the Christian life, I want to tell you a story about a man named Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee, was somebody you probably haven't heard of. He was a brilliant biblical scholar. Uh, he was an expert in the New Testament. He has plenty of great books and commentaries. And uh, though we have some theological differences maybe, he was a man of great reputation. He was just a, a man who was full of joy, full of grace, and, and, and full of this desire to honor the Lord in everything he did. He was, he was just the kind of guy that you want to be friends with. Uh, He used to to teach uh, seminary classes at a seminary in Illinois, and uh, one day he started the first day of his class by talking about his own death. First day of class, students walk in, and he tells his class, one day you will come across a headline that reads, Gordon Fee is dead. Do not believe it, he said, standing atop a desk. He is singing with his Lord and King. And he then began to sing a hymn with his class as he passed out the syllabi. I love that. I think I might be kind of weirded out if that happened in one of my classes, but, but I love that because it, it captures so well how the Christian is supposed to understand his future. The phrase that we're going to focus on in this section is this phrase, eternal life. Eternal life. And, and John, more than any other gospel writer, uses this phrase in his gospel. And uh, you see the same sort of pattern in 1 John. John keeps pointing his readers to this assurance of a future eternal life. But here's what is so important to understand about John's idea of eternal life. And here's why I think Gordon Fee got it so right. John speaks of this eternal life as a present reality. He says, yes, there is an eternal life to look forward to. He says, this world is passing away, and there is a life that does not end and that lasts forever. But that same life that is eternal is in you right now. It is something you have right now. Turn to 1 John 5:13. We read this one earlier. John says, "I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life." He doesn't say that you may know that you will have eternal life one day. He says that you may know that you have, you do have eternal life. Now, of course, that eternal life does have a future reality. In fact, look at 1 John 3, 2 with me. 1 John 3, 2, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so there is a, a future reality where the Christian will be transformed. Every single Christian will be resurrected and they will see jesus face to face in his resurrected glory and we will all be transformed to be like him fit for a, a sinless eternity and yet we don't have that but overwhelmingly in first john overwhelmingly john's talk about eternal life this this life that lasts into the future he talks about it as if we have it right now and you might say how is that possible uh, we live in this world. <laughs> uh, we, we live in time. Our clocks are ticking. We're going to die one day. And that's all true. But it comes down to this question. What is eternal life? If eternal life in your mind is one day being in heaven, if it's, if it's just one day not being in the suffering of this world and, and just being at peace in heaven, If that's your conception of eternal life, then you are missing how John thinks about eternal life. Because over and over he says it's something you have and something you know you can have right now. And it culminates in its fullest expression in the future, but it is something the Christian has right now. So what is eternal life? Look at 1 John 5.20. What is eternal life? 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. GOC, eternal life is something you can have right now because eternal life is Jesus Christ. When you think about eternal life, do you think about something you have, or do you think about something you're waiting for? Let me ask it this way. If eternal life was not something you were waiting for, but something you were living right now, how would that change you? If eternal life was something you were living right now, this very moment, I think you would start to see acts of obedience as tastes of heaven. I think you would start to see that difficult repentance and that selfless service towards one another as an opportunity to begin today a life that you will enjoy forever. And to return to John's whole purpose, I think you would find a sweet assurance and a sweet stability in your spiritual life knowing that you're not just waiting for heaven you're not just waiting for this life to end because you have eternal life right now because you have jesus right now that's why i think gordon fee got it so right he understood that there is a sweet future ahead a sweet future of singing with his god and king but he also understood that that eternal life that he would live in heaven, he had already started living right now when he placed his faith in Jesus. And because he, he understood that, he didn't just wait to sing in heaven, he sang here on earth. And he was able to look death in the face and smile. If eternal life was not something you were waiting for, but something you were living now, how would that change you? As we close, I want to show you just one last verse in 1 John. I know we've been flipping a lot, but look at this last verse, 1 John 5:12. 1 John chapter 5 verse 12. This verse is the whole sermon in a single sentence. 1 John 5:12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have If there is one thing that everything we looked at today has in common, it's a complete and total and utter dependence on Jesus for life. No spiritual life begins unless you trust in Jesus. And and no spiritual life is sustained unless you are in relationship with Jesus. And no spiritual life lasts forever unless it is found in Jesus. If you want to know what true life is, you must know Jesus Christ. If you want your spiritual life to to grow in assurance and to not waver in the ups and downs, you need to trust in Jesus and not yourself. You can't be isolating small pieces of the Christian life hoping that, that that would give you confidence, that that would give you assurance before God. Your feelings and and emotions are not reliable enough to remind you of your standing before God when you need it most. The good works, the the externals of the Christian life, they cannot assure you before God on their own. Otherwise, your assurance would, would just waver with every success and every failure. Nothing that comes down to your work or your ability will ever be enough to stabilize your soul. But the perfect and the pure life of Christ, granted to you by grace through faith, is a sure and a steadfast anchor for the soul. What is true spiritual life? It is Christ. Christ is the full picture of what life is. Nothing more and nothing less. To know that you have life, you must know. Father, we are grateful that you have extended to us a lifeline in the gospel. Uh, We are faced with the, 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 the utter reality that apart from the saving work of Jesus, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins right now, and we would for eternity. But God, because of matchless grace, because of your nature as loving and merciful. You have offered to us a chance to be made alive in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us here tonight, whether for the first time or as we live our Christian lives, I pray that all of us would trust the words of Jesus that whoever loses his own life will find it if he finds it in Christ. Thank you for this good news. Thank you for this gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.